Hello and welcome to Statistically Interesting, the podcast where we interview analysts and data scientists to find out about the fascinating work that they do and how they got to where they are today. I'm your host, Jake Stein. I'm co-founder of RJ Metrics. You can find out more about me and find out about new episodes by following me on Twitter, at Jake Stein. All right. Today on the show, we have Raid Ahmad, head of analytics and data science at Weebly. Raid tells us about the point of diminishing returns when playing multiple tables of online poker simultaneously, what analytics looks like at Weebly, and how to power 2% of the internet. And here's our conversation. Hey, everybody. This is Jake Stein. Welcome you to another episode of Statistically Interesting. Uh, I'm joined today by a particularly interesting guest. Uh, guest, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. Thanks for having me, Jake. My name is Raid Ahmad. I'm the head of data science and analytics at Weebly. Awesome. Uh, yeah, really appreciate you coming on, on the show today. Uh, when you're uh, talking to somebody who isn't in the tech world, like I obviously know that Weebly is an awesome company. I think uh, head of data science is an extremely cool position. Uh, but I imagine there are a lot of folks in your life that don't know exactly what those two things mean. How do you explain that to someone who doesn't work in the same world you do? Yeah, um, very carefully, and sometimes you just got to deal with the fact that uh, you're not going to be able to convey everything. But the, the kind of major points I try to convey are my job is to help companies make better decisions, and in this case, help Weebly make better decisions by, one, helping executives identify important information to collect, two, working with engineers to cleverly figure out ways to go and collect that information, Three, helping analysts think about how to analyze that information that we've collected. And four, finally, sharing it with the business in a way that's easy to act on. Hmm. Very cool. And that, that, that makes it easier to understand. What, when you think about your personal split of time, are there one of those things that you focus on more than the others? Yes. At Weebly, uh, it, there is a very specific breakdown. I would say it varies on the roles that I've had based on kind of where the company is and its analytics evolution, where the individuals that I'm working with are in their analytics evolution and, and in terms of different things that are important for the business. So for Weebly in particular, um, I spend a lot of time working uh, on the first two, which is kind of helping executives identify the important information to collect because there's so much information that Weebly has access to that we want to be able to capture in a good way and that we haven't been doing that for a long time. And so we're kind of like building that process out. And analytics is a very new function at, at Weebly. And then the other piece of it is helping the engineers figure out ways to collect it. So we've implemented an event tracking system that helps us track behaviors on our website to get better at understanding the funnel, get better at understanding retention, et cetera. Very cool. And is that a, like a third-party tool, that event collection system, or, or did you guys roll your own? Um, a little bit of both. So uh, we used a collection system. We used Snowplow Analytics. It's an open source software. Um, we're very happy with them so far. We basically use that open source software as a data enrichment layer and a pipeline to collect the data. Got it. Yeah, we use Snowplow too. It is, uh, awesome. it is a really cool tool. Yeah. Um, and then so you said you kind of built on top of that because it's open source, so you kind of customized it for your use case? Exactly. That's right. Um, you know, we have, as, as you can imagine, we have multiple kind of sources to access uh, Weebly, including the mobile app and the web. And on the web, our, our product is particularly complicated. And so we kind of added in um, some of our own transformations and, and enrichment layers that we thought would be valuable in terms of, uh, you know, additional information we want to collect about our users. Got it. Yeah, and I mean, I think there's, I heard some insane stat about the percentage of people in the United States who interact with Weebly every month. It was, 
uh, a large number, uh, but I bet a lot of them don't even necessarily know that they're interacting with a, with a Weebly webpage if they're just visiting it. Could you just spend a couple minutes talking about what exactly it is that Weebly does? Yeah, absolutely. So Weebly is a company whose mission is to empower entrepreneurs and empower individuals and businesses to have a web presence. There's an extremely large portion of the world that has, uh, that, that has businesses that do not have businesses on the web. And when asked, almost 90% of those people who don't have a presence on the web did not say that they didn't need it. They, say, they said that um, it's either too hard or too expensive. And Weebly aims to solve that problem. We have a suite of tools, one of which, uh, core of which is a do-it-yourself website editor, drag and drop. You can build a site as you like, and it's very easy to use, and you can have it published within minutes if you need to. And it goes out there, and it helps entrepreneurs succeed. We have a suite of tools connected to it, such as uh, Weebly Promote, which is an email marketing tool that links right into Weebly. Then we have an App Center, which allows you to kind of drop and drag and drop widgets in there. We have an e-commerce tool that allows you to collect payments uh, from products that you may sell online, etc. Very cool. And I know the company is operating at at like a pretty pretty impressive level of scale. Are there are there any stats you can share about either number of customers or number of visitors or just something to help us get a, a sense of how how big it is? Sure, we have about thirty million websites that are hosted on Weebly. It's 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 a little more than that. And then we also have about two percent of the top level domains on the internet that are powered by Weebly. Wow. Two percent of the web domains. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's 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 uh, it's pretty massive scale. Yeah, and I'm sure has you know just presents tons of opportunities for interesting analyses to do on that data. Um, what how how did you get to where you are today? Like, what can you tell me a little bit about your the arc of your career? Oh sure. Um, I, I will say, I, this is a question that I, I think about fairly often. Um, I think it's, it's helpful in order to kind of allow you to see patterns about yourself and your decision making. I think it gives you a great sense of gratitude at kind of all of the, the luck that you've had and it you know, keeps you humble. So the honest answer to this question is 90% of it's been luck, circumstance and chance and the rest of it was probably some combination of uh, a deliberate series of local optimizations that I made when I had big decision points and always asking myself what the goal is and trying to abstract out the individual problem to the the overarching problem. And I think kind of my evolution was, you know, as a kid, I loved building. I loved Legos. I loved Meccano. I liked Connects. And I, I... in high school, I ended up discovering debate. And what that kind of gave me was the fact that it wasn't a persuasion game to me. It was more of a hunt for the truth. Any premise is questionable. Everything requires defense. How do you get to the right answer and how do you build upon sound fundamental logic? Um, I discovered computer science in high school and essentially all I did in high school was program and do research for debate. And that was what I spent the majority of my time on. And that led me to um, a, a love of, of poker, and I did that uh, pretty substantially for uh, the end of college and a couple of years thereafter. And the thing that drew me to poker was very much along the lines of debate. Any premise is questionable. It's the ultimate meritocracy. You can think all sorts of things about your game, but at the end of the day, over time, you will always be uh a kind of representation, your performance will always be a representation of the decisions that you're making and really scrutinizing those decisions is is what helps you get better. 
And the main thing I think that has brought me to where I am based on kind of the coalescing of, of poker debate and computer science is the idea that you learn a lot about your cognitive biases and become aware of them. And at the end of the day, we're all only human. I, there's no way I can overcome the biases, but if I think about them a lot and I, I consider all of the decisions that I'm making through the lens of, am I making these common mistakes? I think it prevents you from making a, a lot more mistakes than you otherwise would. Fascinating. Uh, I, I have two things in there that really piqued my interest. Sure. Uh, first of all, uh, Meccano. Uh, I, I played with a lot of Legos. I know about Connects, but I've never heard of that. What is Meccano? Uh, Meccano, I think it might be the, it's like the British name for, uh, it's like the, uh, the like an Erector set or the, the little kind of like, um, it was more with wrenches and, and screwdrivers. It was kind of like they gave you plates and you had to screw them together to build little cars or things like that. Very similar in, in, in nature to Lego and Connects. It was probably... Uh, for slightly older kids. Okay, now because now I'm having a little bit of jealousy because uh, I thought I had like every single Lego esque thing uh, when I was growing up, but now I realized I missed out. So I'm gonna do some shopping on Amazon today and see if I can I can catch up in that respect. Yeah, totally. M e c c a n o or Erector set. E r e c t o r, I believe. Awesome. Uh, I'm also interested in like you talked about poker you talked about how um you know you're, you're trying to combat your personal biases and I, I assume you're trying to take advantage of the biases of other people while you're playing poker yeah uh i'd love to just know like i think you took poker more seriously than most of the people that i know how what, what was your strategy like how did you go about it sure um my view on poker is essentially uh, I was playing 16 tables simultaneously, and uh, the reason for that was This is just, online, right? Yeah, this is yeah, okay. primarily. Yeah, that would be I'm, impressive. I can't imagine trying to do that live. Yeah. Um, uh, I played primarily online in terms of the number of hands, but I, I do think there is a, a highly overlapping but not completely overlapping skill set that I also wanted to develop by playing in person. But, and so I played in person quite a bit. The, the main trade-off there is if you think about it, you're playing one table in person, and uh, the expected value of, of your ability to make money is probably, let's call it X. Um, whatever that value is, when you're playing a single table online, you're actually fairly likely to have a lower than X return, mainly because the players online are a little bit more skilled than you would find at a live casino in, in some of the, the mid-range games. Um, but the key is you can play far, far, far more hands online than you can live. And so the philosophy of it is, okay, if I add a second table, yeah, I'm splitting my, my effort. I don't go to having a return of 2x if I play two like 1.98x. And then as you add more and more games, each individual game gets less and less attention. But it got to the point where kind of the incremental game that I added on as I got more and more focused added more expected value than the incremental decrease in my focus in all of the games. And the rough crossover point was somewhere between 14 and 18 tables simultaneously. Got it. So if you so, had, keep going. Yep. Uh, and so uh, you might ask, how would you measure that? That yeah. seems like a very specific stat. Um, right. And the answer is um, right around, I, I got very lucky. I started playing um, online poker in uh, around 2004, 2005, 2006. That was the time when uh, poker tracking software has 
just begun to, to, to enter the market such that there were very few people who were using it. But it was unbelievably powerful. Um, I ended up making an investment in buying um, a couple of million hand histories. And essentially, these poker tracking tools take the text of a hand history, which is a very mechanical, kind of systematic process. It takes it all in, dumps it into a SQL database, and then allows you to do all sorts of analyses on the types of hands that you played. And so what I did was each session I would tag how many hand or how many tables I was playing simultaneously and basically just did a split to be like, what was my win rate over a large number of hands when I was playing three, seven, 10, 14, 20 tables. And it turned out that the per table rate started declining right around the, the, the 14, to, 14 to 17 range. And that kind of gave me a lot of confidence in saying, hey, look, I could keep going and playing more and more tables, but essentially the cost of the bad decisions that I would be making because I didn't have sufficient time to focus on an important decision since I was playing so many games exceeded my threshold at a certain point. And did, so that, that I totally buy that is the ROI maximizing strategy. Did you go from enjoying poker to once you're getting up to like 16 games at a time, is it still enjoyable for you? Or at that point, is it just a job and it's just you're, you're purely financially motivated? Great question. Um, the answer is a little bit of both. It did become very much mechanical to the point where I'm not making like difficult decisions in, in, in poker tables more than a couple of times an hour. At the end of the day, it becomes a little bit of pattern recognition of all I look at very quickly is a couple of things. What are my cards? What is in the pot? What's the bet size to me? And what is on the board? Those are the quick heuristic things you can look at and make a very quick decision. Um, the times that becomes difficult is when the story of the hand has evolved or changed and you haven't been able to fully follow that because you were playing a couple of other hands. Now, I will say the part that did keep me interested is there was always another challenge to overcome. Um, you know, I could always squeeze the ROI in a, uh, attempt to squeeze the ROI in a different way, but the problem ends up being that that always brings about different challenges. It's a whack-a-mole problem. So an easy way to raise your ROI, assuming your positive expected value, is instead of playing more games, why don't I play higher stakes games? But what that does is it changes the way you play because the players at the higher stakes games are presumably, and this doesn't bear out uh, in, in reality, they are better. And so you need to tighten up your game. And one of the ways that I kept really interested in it and I still love doing it was because um, I had a very clear system where three times a week, the entire morning of my quote unquote poker session was not spent playing. It was spent going through and analyzing all of the mistakes and leaks and holes in my game from the previous two or three days of play. And I would go through the hand histories, analyze it, say, here are the mistakes that I made and would write down my list of here are the top three mistakes that I made and how do I stop from making those mistakes. And my goal for the next session was to ensure that I didn't make those mistakes and focus on those. Now, the problem ends up being there's so many potential quote-unquote leaks in your game, slight misdecisions mis you might be making that you end up same mistakes over and over again even after you've thought about them. And, and, and trying to really create the habits not to do those things um, is, is, is a challenge, and that's one of the things that kept me really interested in it. Hmm. Yeah, and I imagine like you're you're obviously super systematic about this. You were you know making investments. You were following up and making your game better. 
at some point is there like an arms race? Like I bet you were early to this, but I bet you're not the only person that was taking it so seriously. So do you have to deal with both like you mentioned, you know, going to a different stakes game and encountering better people, but just over time that you did this, did your competition become better or more sophisticated? Absolutely. If I tried to play online poker again today, I would get absolutely slaughtered. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it, it, I mean, it, it is. I, I mean, I, I experimented on this. I, uh, I hadn't played, uh, so I stopped playing uh, pretty extensively around 2007, um, and I, I came back in 2011 and said, hey, I wonder if some of these strategies work. Let me try it. And I, I played for not a, a large number of hands such that I'd be super comfortable with the sample size, but I played enough where I was treading water where it was, uh, it was uncomfortable, and I, I wasn't sure it was already did some research and back when I was playing like sub 1% of people were using poker tracker and today you go and you think of the market it's it's almost reversed it's like 90 plus percent of people online in, in the low stakes games they are playing solely based on on, on their poker tracker game hmm. and is that why you originally decided to get out or was it just you wanted to do something different Oh, good question. Um, in 2007, it was still the wild, wild west. Pretty easy to make money. It, I mean, it, it, the ROIs got a little lower, but um, the ultimate reason I left was um, it was a little, it, it was a combination of a number of things. The first and foremost one was um, I've been super lucky in my life, um, had a lot of kind of privilege in there. And one of the things that just didn't feel right and that there was cognitive dissonance was the fact that, hey, you know, I'm young, this is flashy, I'm making a lot of money, this is really exciting, but at the same time, the core of what you're doing is searching out for, for weakness and searching out for kind of explo exploitability and targeting that. And, and the idea of doing that for a career and for a living didn't exactly jive with what I wanted to do. I'm more of like a teacher. I like creating things versus kind of poking holes, loopholes, and finding uh, angles. Like that was something that I enjoyed from an intellectual perspective, but was not something I wanted, a direction I wanted to take my life in the longer run. Also, the other piece of it was just practically speaking, I kind of became a nocturne and and that's fine. I'm a nocturnal person anyway, but to the extreme degree, I, I, you know, I, I saw my friends less than I wanted to. Uh, the hours were potentially pretty long. Um, and, and, and you're living an unhealthy lifestyle, sitting around all the time, inhaling casino around people who aren't particularly pleasant and, and and the whole thing was very antithetical to who I was with the exception of the intellectual like gamesmanship component of it and and that just wasn't enough for me at that point hmm. okay that makes sense and, and even if uh, you know the the lifestyle aspect and the fulfillment aspect uh, that part I think is pretty different from what you're doing today but it's pretty clear how the way that you were thinking about the problems the analytical toolkit you were using all that translates, I think, well to to where you are right now. But I still imagine it was uh, not a trivial jump to make. You know, I, I say going into a job interview and saying, uh, "What's your experience?" Well, I'm totally badass at poker. Uh, so, how did yep. you how did you navigate that transition to uh, like the, the the sorts of jobs you've had since then? Yeah. Um, so I would say my five years at Bridgewater was uh, was 
unbelievably valuable to me. It it really taught me to be extremely effective as a human being. It, it, it helped me. I mean, you got pushed really hard, and it's a hedge fund known for its open and honest culture. I basically got a five-year boot camp in, question everything, prove as much as you can, always improve the process, and think conceptually and systematically. And I would say if I were to you know, make an assumption that where I am today is like a great spot. I would credit um, Bridgewater uh, and, and its process and its and its and its training program and my experience there with with a fair bit of that. Got it. Awesome. Uh, and, and so jumping to to where you are now, uh, you've you've been at Weebly for a year. Is that about right? Yep. Cool. Uh, so. When you think about the the sorts of projects you've tackled there, I'm sure they're like wide ranging. Are, are there some that were just kind of like, uh, at least I imagine, you know, for solving any problem, there's a, a spectrum of tools that you might need. There might be some simple things like just take something, load it in database, run a query, and you have the answer. There's some things where you need some crazy machine learning algorithm to, to get it done. Yep. Uh, I'm interested in both ends of that spectrum. Are, are there? Can you think of an example of something where you know the the tw- you were able to get eighty uh, percent of the value from a pretty small amount of analytical effort? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, so, uh, and again, this is a, largely a function of kind of where uh, where companies are in their uh, analytical uh, evolution. And I think one of the things that um, Weebly did really well is they they grew very quickly and they um, you know pumped out a lot of features very fast and and what that led to was um, measurement that was based solely on and so a lot of the metrics that um, Weebly was using were reasonable metrics but they weren't the ideal metrics to really focus on in terms of here are the things that will move the business and, and matter to the business in the long run if we move and I think the biggest bang for the buck that we got was coming in and really thinking hard about the business logically and coming up with, well, if we could get any of the metrics that we wanted, what would they be versus the, here are the metrics that we have, so we have to use them. And so um, the simplest way I would put it is dashboards, coming up with a consistent set of metrics that the entire business can look at and that the entire business has come to a conclusion that they matter to the business is one of the biggest things you can do. Um, and I think from a level of technical sophistication, it's not particularly technical. It is quite analytical, but the value that the business gets from knowing what is going on and getting ahead of potential trends, I think has the most economic value. Now it's hard to quantify that, but just think of changing a situation where you know the majority of executives are kind of running their own metrics on their own areas of the business and, and thinking about it in a silo just because that's the necessity to, hey, every executive has at their fingertips all of the key metrics at the business at a glance whenever they like. It's a big deal. And we, you know, we take in data science, in the data science field, we kind of sometimes take dashboards for granted. It's like, oh, this is very basic, foundational and fundamental to what allows you to figure out what sorts of projects you need to take on in order to fix the metrics that you want to fix or improve the metrics that you want to improve. And before you got here, there there was there was individual reporting, but it wasn't like one holistic dashboarding system. Is that right? Yeah, I would go. Yeah, exactly. I'd go a little further than that and even say uh, so. There was no analytics team, and hmm. so um, the the way it would kind of operate was the. 
people throughout the business are fairly analytical people. You know, the the one of the co-founders is is an engineer by trade and wrote most of the code that that, that originally built Weebly, and very analytical. But what happens is that would lead to kind of you know when important business decisions were made, somebody would come in, you know, pull a pull a simple query, do some stuff in Excel, and and, and make a reasonably educated guess. But what happens is when you reach a, a scale and you enter a competitive space and you have other job responsibilities, you end up requiring A, a new level of sophistication, B, a level of consistency across a growing organization which goes away when you have that sort of process, and C, you need some mechanism or some way to get the insights that you need more quickly and in a more scalable way. And that's kind of the transition that we wanted to make. The hunger for the data was always there. It's just a matter of how do you make do with what you have and then change the mindset to say, well, we don't have to use what we have and make suboptimal decisions. We can ask for more and actually go and figure out how to get it to help us make the decision that we need to. Hmm. And did you uh, did you use like third-party tools to, to solve that dashboarding problem? Did you build some of it yourself? Like what does that stack look like? Yep, great question. So. Um, a lot of our analytics data sits in Redshift. Um, and we use Amazon, and uh, the way it gets there is through uh, you know we have our MySQL application databases. We have uh, we used to have a straight copyover. It would be a straight um, EL with very little transform, where the MySQL databases would go into S3, S3 would load into Redshift, and then we pointed a BI tool called Looker. Um, we pointed Looker right at um, this copied database, and one thing that's great about Looker is that it has a data modeling language that's a pretty pretty substantial. And the problem we ended up having is Looker or any other BI tool isn't meant to be pointed at application databases. They're inherently messy. They're not dated. They're, they're not easily filtered. They only hold state, not history. And so what we've started to do is take all of that data in S3 and make transformations and turn it into a, a, an actual analytic database with filterable fields and a, and a real data cube. And what we did was we now point Looker at that new analytic database warehouse and we're slowly transitioning all of the old dashboards and the old functionality from quote unquote the old Looker model to the new Looker model. And essentially what Looker allows you to do um, is it allows business users the functionality of pivot tables mm -hmm. in Excel without needing to know the SQL. So essentially what you'll do is you'll drag and drop and create a pivot table on this web interface in Looker. And in the background, Looker is you know, semantically and heuristically creating uh, a SQL query. And then when you hit the run button, SQL, uh, uh, Looker runs the SQL query against Redshift and then returns the result in the form of the pivot table that you had asked for. So it allows business users who don't necessarily know or are comfortable with SQL to get insights as long as they know how to use a pivot table, which is pretty straightforward. That's awesome. Yeah, and we uh, we have a bunch of common customers with Looker and they're partners with our, of ours, and it's an awesome yeah. tool. Uh, do you, uh, for, for doing that transformation from that operational database to the analytical schema, uh, is that something that, is that just custom code that you all wrote? Do you use any like open source things like Luigi or Airflow to manage that? Like how does that work? Great question. We 
Um, we used Luigi as our as our job manager, and we had a uh, originally the ETL for um, reasons that are not known to me um, was written in Clojure, okay. um, which is which is a reasonable language for the job, um, but it, it just wasn't popularly known, and there's only a couple people on the team who knew it. Um, but we've kind of refactored a lot of those closure jobs. Originally, the ETL, the brains of the ETL, was all within the ETL code itself. So in terms of what to run, when to run, how to run it. And that became pretty messy uh, as we added more and more things to the ETL. So we've kind of abstracted that away. We now have Luigi as the brains of the operation. It splits our ETL job across the machines in an intelligent way. And we've refactored a lot of the code to be a little bit more modularized. And one of the main things that that's allowed us to do is give the analysts who are working with the end data more into how the application data got transformed into the actual database. Because one big thing is if analysts are working with our uh, data cube and they don't really understand the definition of a field or how it was defined in code or how people got to the different values, you always kind of get stuck and you have to wait, go to an engineer, ask them to look at the code and then try to debug it. But now we've given the analysts an opportunity to see where the code is coming from, that wrote, uh, see the code that wrote the query, where it's coming from, and then go into Luigi themselves and dive in there and kind of read the Python code, read the closure code to try to figure out, oh, here's what's going on. Got it. Very cool. And you, so you've got the, applica- the, the, the data from the application database. I assume in that same Redshift data warehouse, you probably have the event data that Snowplow is collecting. Is there, o- is there other data that gets fed into that data warehouse, like potentially from external data sources or SaaS tools that, that you all use? Yep. Great question. So we have a, a, a few uh, few things there. So currently, our event data, um, you know, our, our system's fairly new, and so we are putting all of that data into uh, Redshift as well. It hasn't reached a size level where we're uh, where we're like uncomfortable with having it in, in in Redshift. There will reach a point probably where we'll need to likely incorporate some sort of EMR layer, but we're not there yet. Um, the other things that are in that database, there are some things. So we do, uh, we use our, our customer success team uses Zendesk, and so we have a, a fair bit of Zendesk data that we we try to pull in and then cross reference with our users in uh, in, in Redshift. In addition to that, um, we use uh, an email tool called Silverpop. Uh, it's just a, basically a way to uh, interact and communicate with our customers via email. And so Silverpop is actually a, a two-way connection. In one way, we send data to Silverpop, which allows our uh, email marketer to kind of pick out users based on criteria about them, i.e. stuff that's stored in our database, that allows him to kind of have a front end in Silverpop to say, oh, okay, send it to people who have logged in within the last 30 days but have not published and have used an element uh, on their website. And on, and on the back end, it feeds back in, which is the kind of last piece that we're building right now, which is uh, Silverpop collects kind of open rates and, and, and read rates on those emails, and we want those to feed back into our database and the next step would be once it's fed back into the database actually do some analysis on what types of emails are most effective to what types of users how do we target that and those are insights that we'll want to share with the with the email marketing team got it very cool and, and yeah, so I think circling back to my original question, um, I think dashboarding makes sense, a ton of sense as a tool that it's not, uh, you don't need any you know super advanced computer science knowledge uh, or, or higher level statistics in order to do it. You know, it's it's a non-trivial thing to do well, like it sounds like you guys are doing. Uh, 
but I'm also curious on the flip side of that, you know, are there things where you really did need to, you know, do use some really powerful analytical tools or maybe even something that you haven't solved yet that you're still working on, but something on the other end of that spectrum? By other end of the spectrum, are you just saying um, high level of technical sophistication or a high level of technical sophistication that did not create economic value? Uh, I'd be interested in both. Uh, I think, okay. yeah, I'd, uh, either something that did or did not work out. Got it. So in terms of that, I think... Or either, if you only have one good example. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I would say in terms of the, the highest technical sophistication, one of the things that we've struggled with is implementing event tracking in a, in a, in a strong and clean way. And, and that's mainly a function of the Weebly product is super complex uh, on the web. There's lots of different paths people can take, lots of different landing pages, lots of different um, approaches people can take in different pages to do the exact same action. And so what's ended up happening is we're having a difficult time really going in there. And, and I can ask, hey, can you tell me what methods people use? And that's a great question I would love to be able to answer. However, in order to do that, we need a comprehensive list of all of the places where people can upgrade throughout our code. And, and those, those, those places are bountiful. And so what we end up having on the event tracking side is we have a system that can collect events, but the complexity of our product makes it very hard up front to spend a lot of time saying, okay, here's the first step of the funnel, here's the second step of the funnel, but there are six or seven other ways people can leave the first step and end up back at the second step that's not directly one-to-one. And so that mapping has been uh, a very technically challenging problem uh, because it's it's also kind of operationally difficult. You can't just shut off a bunch of pages and then create only one flow. Like there's a lot of legacy there. Um, but the economic value that we've garnered from event tracking has, has not been that high so far. Um, but hopefully one of the goals is to kind of break through that, get a better mapping and, and maybe break it off into chunks. Now, the other things um, that kind of in my past experience that have had um, high technical sophistication and, and low economic value is um, a lot of mistakes that I've made in the past of attempting to use more sophisticated models because we didn't have good data. And as you kind of now I think about them like that's stupid, um, garbage in, garbage out, the right. model there's no magic in there. And so some of those things that we've tried were uh, potentially, we, we used some neural nets and, and those did not work out. Those were kind of complex to, to implement and the black box nature of them made them much, much harder to derive economic value from because at the end of the day, a lot of questions that the business cares about centers along the why and uh, neural nets are not particularly good unless you go really deep and sophisticated at answering those why questions. Hmm. Cool. Yeah, and I think that's uh, it's always tempting to try to solve uh, problems of bad data with like IQ points. Um, but yeah, it, yeah and, and and you know what? It it most of the time doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> um, could, could you talk a little bit about just how your team is structured? I know there's like schools of thought that it ought to be a monolithic group, or others that have it embedded in in the other teams throughout the company. Like, how how does Weebly do that? Sure. I've thought about this problem a lot too, and I, I come to the conclusion that like, I agree with the majority of people who say different companies 
structures and different problems that you're tackling along the evolution of a company in their analytics. It requires different approaches. And so at Weebly, um, we have a centralized team. Um, I report directly to the CFO, so we're not in any of the or uh, business development organizations. We kind of serve as a source of truth slash objective opinion on what we think is best for the business. Now, for Weebly, that I think is the right answer. And, and, and the, the hypothesis there is we are very early in our analytics evolution. And one of the primary goals, um, there's a couple, but one of the primary goals is consistency in our reporting and metrics and how we think about the business. And uh, a centralized group, is, is that's one of the main benefits of having a centralized group. Um, the second benefit that I find is, uh, especially in a situation where you're building analytic capability in the business for the first time, some of the most important things that you're going to do are not going to be within a, a specific function or within a silo. It's going to come from synthesis and coalescing lots of information from different parts of the business. And I wanted to make sure that the analysts on the team had the opportunity to be generalists up front, to say, hey, I want you to understand how product works, but I also want you to understand how does that interact with marketing? How does that interact with customer success? And one great example of that was um, our team, we, we handle kind of inbound demand from, from all of the teams uh, with a, a portion of our, our time and the rest is kind of strategic based on what we think is the most important to the business. Um, one of the example of this was, you know, our customer success team came to us and said, we want to understand how we can uh, find users or how many users are there that churn off on a monthly basis. And so that very simple question, very interesting to know, and we want to figure out what to do with that. We wanted to take that a step further and say, well, we can actually pair this with email marketing. And what we ended up doing was we created a list of users, had the customer success team reach out to them. We graded the responses of those users. Did they end up upgrading? Did they end up coming back to us or not? And started creating criteria to lead score, to say, here are the people that we should call. Here are the people that are probably not worth calling. For the people probably not worth calling, we said, hey, why don't we take that list and, and create another test where we send an email, which is much lower cost, and we'll see what the ROIs on each of those paths are. Maybe it makes sense to send emails to everybody because the response rate to emails was the same as making a phone call. But in higher likelihood, what makes more sense probably is calling the high value people because they're much more likely to convert and let's say there's a, a much higher conversion rate relative to email, whereas for the lower people, uh, lower likelihood of conversion, email actually makes the most sense because the calls are just going to be so costly that and, you know, a cheap email will convert a couple of people and that's the best you can hope for. And that was one situation where individually the email marketing team could have run an experiment like that. Individually the customer success team could have run an experiment like that. But combining those two approaches gets you a holistic solution that's probably better than an individual optimization on either of the two. Hmm. And do you happen to know like how, how much of a lift uh, you were able to get from that, uh, that composite approach that you were able to take? Yep, yep. great question. So um, the w best way to describe it is we, uh, the control group was a bunch of people that we ended up putting into a list, 
and not calling. And they, they, they have some level of self-correction anyway. So that's why we wanted to make sure we had that control group. Sure. And our, our, our test group was the ones that we actually called after 14 days. The lift that we experienced was roughly 1.9 times uh, in terms of dollars. So oh, wow. the dollars that we got back from the people in the control group was 1.9x less than the dollars we got from the people that we called. And that was for um, not the entire cohort, but the, the top half of the cohort based on our lead scoring. Hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I... In running those results, sometimes my favorite ones to to get are like the the null hypothesis, uh, basically. And because first of all, I think it's it's great when people are actually running that experiment on you know their own job to like when they question like, hey, am I actually accomplishing something here? And they find yep. out, you know, what I could be spending my time more productively doing something else. And that is uh, so great. But when you get a uh, almost doubling the uh, the result, that's that's pretty great too. Oh yeah, totally, totally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like it seems like your your team has a bunch of different jobs. Some of them are strategic, looking at the business as a whole. Some of them are supporting uh, these other departments and, and working closely with them. Uh, are there things where you're relying on a third party product or service where, for one reason or another, you want to bring that in house in the future and something that you want to like strategically own? Um. Hmm. That's a good question. In terms of stuff that we want to own strategically, right now, ooh, right now, there's not that many things that we're building out that we want that for. Like, I think, mm-hmm. for example, the customer success stuff with Zendesk, I feel pretty good about that. Like, we have the data that we need, and it, it's a tool that, that's built out. Um, the, the honest answer is not right now. There might be in the future in terms of kind of, um, I, I will say we, we bias ourselves. Uh, we build a lot of things in-house. We have a, a, a large and talented engineering team. Um, maybe we build too much in-house. I, I'm not sure, but um, we, we do have that tendency in terms of when we you know did an evaluation of uh, of uh, event tracking tools, kind of, we looked at a lot of uh, you know outsourced solutions, and it, you know some of them were too expensive, some of them didn't give us the flexibility we wanted, and we said at the end of the day, um, we wanted something that, if we're going to build it big, we may as well kind of own it and and customize it to uh, uh, to our to our liking. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, and that that makes me have a guess as to how you answer my next question, but I'll just ask you to make sure. Uh, yep. The reverse of that last one. Uh, is there anything that you have built in-house today that you think, you know, at some point in the not too distant future, you're going to want to outsource because it's just not, not, not a job that you all ought to be doing internally? Um, not right now, because again, like I think we, we, we're very careful about the things that we choose to do internally, as you, as you should be, right? Because, uh, you know, not just taking into account the customizability, but the ongoing operational cost. Um, but at the end of the day, I think one thing that we may run into is as we scale some of these things, like our event tracking system and our, our kind of internal data collection mechanisms, like there may come a time when we need to reevaluate that. But I, I, th- I think we're, we're, we're not that close to those situations yet. Mm-hmm. And, and I know you mentioned that, that we've got a really talented, really uh, sizable engineering team. How many folks are on that team? Yep. So on the uh, product engineering team, which is kind of the the, the large engineering team, I, I believe it's uh, between I want to say between eighty and eighty and ninety. And then um, uh, analytics engineers, the engineers on my team, there's uh, there's four of them. Got it. And, and are they the ones that are responsible, like for 
uh, like things like the ETL scripts or getting the data into a place where the analytics and reporting can be done on it? Or is that done separately? Absolutely. Okay. Yes, that is, that is uh, in my view, one of the most critical components of a well-functioning analytics team is to have, um, is to have uh, impact through the analytics engineers. Because the worst thing you can have is every time an analyst runs into a problem with the database or has a question that it's something that gets added to the engineering queue, at the point at which you're competing with product roadmap priorities, you're going to lose almost all of the time. And it's just not a situation that you want to get yourself into. And so um, you know, my analytics engineering team, they're killers. They're the ones who own the entire process of anything that comes within the kind of the boundaries of the analytics data warehouse. We own all of the, the scripts and the data and the code that brings the data into the warehouse and incorporates it into our warehouse. And we also own kind of what we call the API to the rest of the organization. So we have, you know, a list of things that we are willing and able to provide on a kind of uh, uncorrupted slash verified basis. And anybody from the product engineering team or, or you know, the email marketing uh, products they can plug into our interface and you know if somebody wants us to build an interface we're also happy to do that but we want to make sure that we keep our our house clean and and our our code base uh kind of centralized in its architecture and thinking got it so that uh i I would think one of the big benefits of that is that you probably either never or very rarely are blocked by a lack of a resource in order to complete a project because you You've got you know the people that you need to execute that project, even despite the fact that they might have cross-functional skills. They're all on your team, so they get staffed on that project, so they can execute it from start to finish without waiting on someone else. Is that the right way to think about it? Yes, that's largely true, and I think the key component there is uh, I've always found um, an analyst-engineer pairing is an extremely powerful combination. And and what you described is exactly right. It's like you have a Venn diagram, which is fairly overlapping in the skill sets of, of those of those two people. And what you essentially do is as you pair them together, the analyst gains more of the technical coding skills just by working with the engineer. And the engineer gains more of the business insight and logic and how to think about it from working with the analyst. And essentially, the, the these unicorns, which is the idea of finding somebody who can end-to-end understand the business and create the solution to solve the problem that the business has using the core nuts and bolts of the data. And I think pairing those two people together creates a very powerful force that can, uh, you know, take projects from start to finish without lots of without lots of lead time, without lots of blockers, without lots of kind of getting stuck in creating new workflows. Hmm. Okay, that makes sense. And, and if you had I, will, I guess I was going to ask this question in the form of a magic wand, uh, but it might just okay. be a couple more of those uh, analyst-engineer pairings. But if, if you could snap your fingers tomorrow and have the answer to a question for the business uh, through magic wand or, or other means, uh, what, what question would you get answered? The question I would want answered is, what are the most effective marketing channels that we can use to gather users. And in particular, the thing, and that's not a pipe dream question to answer, but the the part of it that might be the pipe dream question to answer is given the competition in the space, there is tons of unknowns in terms of advertising dollars and advertising channels and advertising avenues that our competitors are spending on. Mm -hmm. I would love to understand their ROI on those things as well Mm -hmm. um, because those are directly impactful. And so the things that I like to know about that you always find hard to 
know about are, are games of incomplete information where you hold some of the keys and, and, and other people hold other keys. I would love to see the other keys. Yeah. And I know that uh, you guys consider Wix one of your competitors. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So they're they're public, so you might be able to get a little bit more information on them than some of the other ones. But it's still, I don't know if it's the level of detail that would be actually useful. But uh, I, I don't doubt that that would be really valuable to know. Absolutely. And and you can sure as hell bet that uh, you know people are scrutinizing everything that that public companies in the space put out. Yeah. Uh, cool. Uh, is there anything that you think people that listeners to this podcast ought to check out, either a job posting at Weebly or some product or service that you think is really cool? Anything from either you or anybody else that you think uh, would be worth plugging? Yeah, absolutely. I am really, really excited about bringing on a product analytics lead, somebody who's very experienced in product analytics, and that's a job posting, and it would be on my team, and I've been looking, and I I would love somebody for that. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is just check out Weebly.com. If you're looking to build a website for anything, it's free. If you like it, you can pay for other features, but it's free basically forever. Um, Super easy tool to use, drag and drop. I think you'll love it. And if you have either a hobby or a business you've always been wanting to get started, like don't let that be a hurdle. Go go check out Weebly.com. Yeah, it is an absolutely awesome tool, and I bet that literally everybody listening to this has been on multiple awesome Weebly websites. You can make them look like literally anything you want. It's it's super cool. Yeah, um, absolutely. For for that product analytics lead, uh, what's the right background for that person? Yeah, the right background for that person is I'm looking. You know, somebody um, you know seven to ten or more years of experience. Ideally, I'm looking for somebody who has the um, entire analytics skill set, obviously heavily, he- heavily uh, comfortable with SQL. Um, R and Python are actually um, kind of like nice to have, but the desire to learn it, it should be there. Um, the key components I'm looking who helped um, a product-centric company make really important product decisions in a data-driven way. And the other thing that I would look for and consider important there is, you know, I'd, I'd look for their ability to work with product managers. Ideally, if they've been a product manager for a little while, that would be pretty cool. So all of those things, I think, are, are important to the background. And experience playing poker is a plus but not a must. Is that right? Uh, precisely. Okay. Good to know. Uh, and people can find out more about that. Is that just like something like Weebly.com slash jobs or jobs.weebly.com? Um, I think it's Weebly.com slash careers. Yep. Okay. Great. Uh, awesome. And then what about you? Uh, can we follow you on Twitter? You have a personal website. Like, how can we uh, follow you on the internets? Sure. I am on the internet at raid.net, R-A-A-I-D.net. And you can find me on Twitter at, at raidamad. Well, not .com, but at Just, raid. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Uh, awesome. And then last question. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you think... Uh, would be interesting to talk about anything that I just totally failed on as an interviewer. No, I thought you did a great job. I appreciate the the time you took. That was uh, that's my my fishing for compliments question, and I hooked a big one, so that's great. Uh, you, you succeeded. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much. This has been super interesting, and uh, really really appreciate you taking the time. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Jake. Take care. Thanks for listening to Statistically Interesting. This podcast is produced by me and Ryan Williams at RJ Metrics HQ, which is right across the street from City Hall in sunny Philadelphia. If you like what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button so you'll never miss an episode and rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.